Good morning, Melissa. How are you today? I'm great. Good morning, Kurt Graves. It's morning time when we're recording. It is. This is unusual. We usually record in the afternoon, but you have a big, exciting day ahead of you. Yes. So we're getting it out of the way early, and we'll see how that affects uh, the quality of this episode, frankly. I, yeah, I'm pre-caffeine, so who knows what's going to happen. I am post-caffeine. I did already wake up and have my first cup of coffee for the day and um, an amazing donut provided by one Mr. Antonio Trinidad, who was kind enough to bring it uh, to us yesterday at the Sheboygan North Tournament. So thank you, Antonio. It was delicious. I had the blueberry one today. It was revelatory because I love blueberry glazed cake donuts. And my favorite is from a weird donut shop in Milwaukee, uh, honey dip donuts. And that was basically like a honey dip donut. And my heart is so warm now. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. I am going to let John eat the blueberry one because blueberry is his favorite. (gasps) Oh my God. You're such a good husband. Sometimes. Sometimes (laughs) I do good things. So, um, anything exciting to talk about from your week? Gosh, I feel like I need to have more to say when we do this part because I never have anything exciting that I've like done did other than work at my job. Mm-hmm. I did I did a thing this week where I took a seminar that I had scheduled myself for my work, but I took it because I'm a good employee about uh, applying the love languages to your work environment. And um, my mm-hmm. love language is acts of service. So, because I'm really uncomfortable with basically all other love languages. <laughs> was that a surprise to you though? Or did you already know that about yourself? I basically, I thought that mine was going to be quality time. Uh, but I did know that all other love languages make me uncomfortable. I suck at getting gifts. I'm horrible at receiving compliments. So, yeah. yeah. But it was very interesting and it was fun to like learn what my boss's love languages are and to figure out that we already apply them into our working relationship. So, but those sorts of things are interesting to me. I love hearing people's personality tests and I'm obviously obsessed with knowing what people's Hogwarts tosses are. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the most interesting okay. thing I did this week. <laughs> very well. Um, I also didn't do that much this week other than work and prepare for the North High tournament. So I don't really have anything exciting to say. I did binge all of Russian Doll, which is great. If you have four hours to spare, it's just eight, like 30 minute episodes. And it is a really good show on Netflix. Check Mm. it out. Yeah, it's on my list. And I have a new actor crush, Charlie Barnett on that show. I'd never seen him in anything else, but he is so good his name is familiar to me though he's on like the chicago pd chicago fire shows i guess i don't know i looked him up and i was like i don't recognize him from anything but i i like him and i liked his work in that show a whole bunch and natasha leone is just so great it's like she's peak natasha leone uh in that show she's basically perfection as a human being i love her So that is really the most exciting part of my week, other than winning our Oscar predictions competition from last week. And who could have predicted that? (laughs) Um, Apparently not our Instagram audience, because I put out a poll saying who was going to win, and they thought you would. Yeah. Like, that doesn't track people. It doesn't track History does not show that to be the case. I have never won our our Oscars predictions. Maybe. So is it just like that our people like to root for the underdog or is it just that I am so unlikable that they just wanted you to win? I think people I think maybe my my thought is people just wanted my predictions to also be the correct ones. So that's what they were rooting for. That that's a flawed theory because they had not heard your predictions yet. This all happened on Sunday before our episode came out. Optimism, Kurt. Optimism. No, I think they're probably just rooting for the underdog mm. knowing that I lose every effing year. Maybe. And handily. So so that was that was the 
the most exciting part of my week, other than, as I said, preparing for uh, the Sheboygan North tournament, uh, which I'm just Ooh. realizing in my in our outline, I never changed from South. So, oh, um, I do think something exciting that we did this week was that we got to watch the season 11 premiere of Drag Race together on Friday night after we helped set up for Congress. That was exciting. So true. That's right. We did something social and fun. Yeah. It's so rare that it <laughs> like just flew out of my mind. Yeah, because I was uh, down in Sheboygan for the North Tournament on Friday getting things prepped. And I booked a hotel room down there so I wouldn't have to drive down first thing Saturday morning early, early, early. And uh, my husband came down and joined me because he was going to help out on Saturday as well. So then we went over to your and Katie's house and we watched the season 11 premiere. And I have to say, I admitted this to John on the ride over to your house that... I was experiencing some drag race fatigue. Yeah. But the season 11 premiere really like woke me back up and I'm really excited for all of these new queens. And I think it's a super talented group. 100% very excited. (laughs) Could turn this play acting podcast into us talking about drag race season 11 premiere. But I feel like Antonio would have to be here with us. And most of our audience does not care. True. Although if they're not listening or watching that show, they should be. Oh, Go watch it. Do it's it. the best thing on television. Yes. Whether or not you have ever seen a drag queen, if you know anything about drag culture, just watch it because it is an amazing reality competition show. It is so thoughtful. It is so well written. It is a great it is full of heart it is a place to see queer people and queer people of color and trans people properly represented by television and being able to tell their own stories without any sense of irony or um malice and it's just so nice it's or so pity. nice there's or no pity. pity involved either oh yeah. it's just celebration of people who are so often marginalized and it's delightful delightful yeah, I agree. So go watch Drag Race. But anyway, after Friday night, you woke up hecka early to Sheboygan North Tournament. Yeah. Um, I, I got to North by 6.30. And from then on, things were kind of crazy for like an hour and a half. Uh, a lot of drops this year. Um, and it's funny because I was talking to Ben about it in the tab room during the day. Because what I tried to do with setting up the tournament this year was I tried to have the rounds be a little bit shorter. So like aiming for five or six in a round instead of seven in a round, because I thought, well, maybe then we can, with all the double and triple entries, maybe we can keep things on time better if there's not so many people in every round. Um, Because it's one thing if a five person round runs a little late. It's another thing if a seven person round runs a little late. Yeah. So that was my thinking as I was making them. And we had the space because we expanded into some more rooms over at the middle school. So I was like, let's do that. Let's make the round shorter. But then what that meant is once the drops started coming in Saturday morning, we had a lot of sections to collapse. Some rounds ended up being four people when we couldn't collapse around to make it work. And I just, I don't like that. Yeah. Um, So, but I talked to Ben about it. I was like, you know, is there any way to predict or like have has he noticed as a tournament host is there any um you know logic to whether or not you're going to get a lot of drops and he agreed with me that there's really not you can't predict that stuff um you know last year we both felt like we had very few drops in comparison to previous years and then this year lots of drops so, so many you just you can't predict it nobody can so just keep trying new things and seeing if they work out. And if they don't, then they don't. On so. to the next thing. Yeah. But it was really nice to be able to work with Heath and Jenny, the new coaches at North, who did a great job setting up the food and feeding all the kids and all the judges. And Heath ran Student Congress on Friday night. And so they really did take on a lot, even though I was there to help with the minutia of the tournament running. Um, And I think they both learned a lot this year and neither one of them was, you know, intimidated by all the work that had to be done. They just took it on and they they kept going. And I am I am so impressed 
having worked closely with the two of them for the last week with with how willing they are to just take things on and how many things they have noticed about tournament structures throughout the year mm-hmm. that like they were asking really smart questions you know even before I had a chance to say stuff so just through observation of like looking at how tournaments are run they had learned a lot and I think that's a lesson too for anybody who is a new coach or who might be thinking about running a tournament for the first time you can learn a lot just by observing how other tournaments are run and identifying the things about the tournaments you like that you want to emulate yeah because you know what you like and you can see what works and you can listen and observe to the things that people might be complaining about. And you can ask your students the things that they like about tournaments and what they don't like uh, and put that feedback to good use since they're sort of later in this second half of the season, they get to make those choices. Also, I just want to point out, and you and I did talk about this, mm-hmm. how much more powerful it is watching a tournament be run where one of the coaches and it is an administrator in the high school like watching Jenny just have like you asked for boxes and three different people all of a sudden just showed up in a room with boxes for us like Mm -hmm. it would have taken me I would have had to hunt around for like an hour and a half like rifling through garbage cans to get boxes at my high school whereas Jenny just called into a walkie and then stood in place for four minutes and then 15 boxes showed up it was amazing I I, I was kind of making fun of her about that last night uh, or yesterday (laughs) I was like yeah you talked to that that walkie talkie and like three people were battling to be the one to get you boxes. I was like, that is not how it normally works. And maybe that's an administrator thing. I think it probably is. But I think it's also just somebody who works in the building all the time yeah, and works directly with, you know, because teachers, I don't, I, and teachers can correct me, but I don't know that they have as much of a link to the support staff of a school, like the custodial yeah. staff and that sort of stuff. Whereas like Jenny works with them all the time when you're at the administrator level. And so they know her, they know if she's asking for something, it's because she really needs it. Um, and I will say the best year I ever had of, of running North was last year after I had worked in the school district for a full year. And my job, even working downtown, was to communicate with custodial staff and secretaries. Like that was my yeah. job. And so once those people knew me and they knew that if I was asking for something, it's not because it's frivolous. It's because I really need it because they had learned working with me, um, you know, that I could be trusted. And, you know, the, the back and forth of like, well, why do you need this and what is it for? That went away after they were familiar with me, um, but it was not to the level of, yeah, Jenny having that walkie talkie and being able to ask for things. And people were just like there and ready. It was amazing. It was great. It was really, yeah, it was cool to watch. So uh, she was quite the catch, as was Heath. Like, and Heath like just took to like the computer side of things so quickly. Like they're going to be a great, a great team for running tournaments in the future. Yeah, I I predict that next year I will be barely involved because I think they got it. I love a well-balanced coaching duo. Mm -hmm. It is nice to see. Is there anything else about the tournament that we want to talk about? Other than a big old thank you to Jenny's husband for providing um, amazing barbecue for the judges lounge. People were losing their minds when I got back from the middle school and I went in there to eat the sweet potato chili that my roommate had made for Heath so that there would be a vegan vegetarian option. Like there were multiple people just standing around the table, just like showering her husband with praise. It was amazing. Good. Good. I'm happy to hear that. Um, I got down there and had some brisket and it was, it was delicious. I am so pleased. And I think, um, you know, that uh, having done it for their very first year, it was successful. And I'm willing to bet it's just going to get better and better and better as the years go on. So thank you to Jenny's husband, who did a great job. Yay. Supportive Yay. forensics husbands and wives. I know. It's the best. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and also, I will say, too, like, I had like one of the best tab staffs this year. Like everybody um, was really active and did their did their thing and 
Um, it was nice to have some new faces in my tab room because some of the uh, previous tab staff that I have used, they're not really involved in the activity as much anymore, or they weren't at this tournament in particular. And so like, I'd never been in a tab room with Mark Adi and he was great. I'd never been in a tab room with Mike Wagner and he was great. Um, it was awesome to get to spend some time with the Sextons again. Um, I was able to have Rain, in addition to Steve from Arrowhead, join us in the tab room. And I, of course, had tabbed with her at her tournament. So I knew she was capable and really um, efficient and smart. And so I was just surrounded uh, by smart, fun people all day long who just know how to do their thing. And I have to give a shout out to Ben Kroll from South, um, who really is like my commander my right-hand man, because I just basically bark things at him all day, like, balance this round, or find this judge, or fix this thing. And he, he just does it. It's great. So if you were surrounding yourself at North with mm -hmm. smart, wonderful people, mm -hmm. then what do you say about the smart, wonderful people that you sent to the other building? What does that make me and Antonio and Michelle Vutek and Dan Schilke? It makes you smart, capable people who I know will do a good job even when I'm not there. Okay, good. And it's also like an opportunity for you and Antonio to like have plenty of time to talk about Drag Race. And then I have Shelly Utke there to supervise. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true no I just I thought and you can tell me if I'm wrong you can do it in public if you want I just thought that was a cool combination I think you guys would would work well together it was delightful we were showing Shelly pictures of uh, various drag queens and because we were breaking down makeup that we liked and preferred but then we also had a really delightful conversation the four of us about weird species of birds and we're just looking at pictures of birds <laughs> So, and this is why you're at the middle school. This is why you keep me far away so that I can have conversations about harpy eagles and shoe build storks <laughs> because this is the life that I lead. Also, if you've never looked at a picture of a harpy eagle or a shoe build stork, do yourself a favor and look at it because I feel like if any animal has ever been a visual representation of what I believe people feel about me as a person, the shoe build stork is the closest I'll ever come. Okay, I'm going to look it up now. Look it up. Shoe build stork. Image search. Oh, it's got a big old bill. Right. It's got, it looks like a shoe. Oh my God, here's one where it's holding a duck in its mouth. Yeah, they're not the nicest of storks. They're also just giant. They're really large birds. Oh yeah. But... I feel like this is me. Okay. That's good to know. Now yeah. I need to find my bird. Oh, you're something delicate and beautiful and tropical and you know it. Mm. I, I don't mean, know do about you... the bright tropical colors though. No, not really me. Okay. Have you ever looked at a harpy eagle? <laughs> Look at vision. This is so good for our audio podcast. This is great. <laughs> Oh my. Harpy eagles are they're all gray and like blues and they're very sassy. Yeah. Um and yes, they're this, massive. this is an expression I have worn on my face before. Yes. It's okay. true. This could be me. Okay. All right, well, you know what? I'm gonna do some research and we'll come back to our Forensics Faces audience with a more concrete answer in the future. But if you believe that you know what bird, maybe you're someone who's very into birds or birding or whatever it's called when you're a bird scientist slash specialist. I know it's got a fancy name. Is it an ornithologist? Is it ornithologist? Yeah, an, ornitho an ornithologist. If you're an ornithologist secretly who listens to our podcast and you know what birds represent Kurt and I, please let us know. Because I don't have that intense of knowledge of birds, surprisingly. I'm more of a you marsupial woman myself. Surprisingly. Like everybody's just as like, oh yeah, Melissa seems like the type of person who'd know a lot about birds. But like, as someone who has weird and, and specific interests, would it be that out of character for me if all of a sudden I just got real deep into birds? No, it wouldn't. But it's also not something I'd be like, oh yeah, Melissa equals birds. That's fair. I would never Melissa have them as a pet. 
Melissa equals weird and specific obsessions? Absolutely. Yeah. But not specifically any one thing. I would never have a bird as a pet, so I could never be that kind of a bird person. Okay. All right. I can't do it. Well, that's a great transition into our topic of the week. Is it? No. But we've gone so far left field, they needed to bring us back somehow. Uh, Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll we, give it to you. This week, in our categorious discussion, we are talking about play acting. Play acting. Play acting. And can I do a disclaimer before we have this conversation? Yes. I need to just make it very clear from the start that I do not mean to disparage any particular um, contestants in this activity or any coaches who have contestants in this activity, but I will warn you, my overall opinion of the state of play acting is that it's in trouble. And we will go into detail with that. But I just want to start by saying, I don't mean to offend, but I don't do anybody any favors by pulling punches. And I really think that part of our discussion of play acting is going to be about the sad state of affairs that currently is play acting. And uh, I I want to be real about it. And I want to be honest and upfront. um, And I hope that Everybody who participates in this activity and loves this activity understands that I want it to be really good. And that's why I'm going to talk the way I will about it. But it might seem really hypercritical at face value. Not we're we're not attempting to disparage, but one of the reasons that we're doing this categorious series is because Kurt and I have had conversations, especially around categories like play acting, within which we are disheartened. So we want to make sure that we are, yeah, because I'm, I'm in a similar little boat with the play acting. But mm-hmm. so I never did play acting in high school. My team has never been, never not while I was in high school or while I coached, we have never been a super play acting school. I do one play acting piece every couple of years. Mm-hmm. Much more duo focused and group and terp focused on the South team. And I've had some pretty good successes, not not anything like amazing, but I've had pieces do well in play acting uh when we do attempt to do them. Okay. I have not really coached uh, many play actings. I convinced uh, a two group uh, or a group of two last year to give it a shot. Um, but it, you know, I, I'll admit they did not put in the work to be successful. So I don't consider that really much of a, a run at, at play acting. Um, and I never participated in it when I was uh, a student either. But do do you have the definition of play acting readily available, Melissa? I actually don't have the window open right now. I'm so what? unprepared. We switched so to a 9 a.m. W- recording time and you forget your job? I know, I'm awful. Um, the WFCA defines play acting as a group presentation of a memorized scene or cutting from a play without costume, makeup, lights, or properties other than an available table or desk as a substitute, and chairs if required. Emphasis is on character development and movement with physical actions other than stage movement pantomimed. Yes. I actually think that's an excellent definition of what the category is supposed to be. Yes, what the intention of the category is supposed to be. Yes, which, you know, no tea, no shade, but like the WFCA rules don't always line up with like the values of what the category is supposed to be. I think that one defines it very well, and it makes it uh, different from duo and group yes. and turf. Like it, it identifies what it is about play acting that is supposed to be different from those uh, two other categories. So I think that's a great definition, and I have nothing to add. Well, fancy that. I know. I know. 
So maybe we need to switch up what we talk about, because uh, usually the question that we would ask ourselves at this point is like, what are the elements of a successful performance in this category? But having already spoiler uh, spoilered ourselves in saying that like, we haven't seen a lot of successful performances in this category as of late. Um, do we instead want to maybe flip it on uh, its head and ask the question, what are the successful aspects of a performance we feel are missing in a lot of what we're seeing in play acting now? Yeah, probably. Okay. Do you want to start or should I? I will. I'll begin. Uh, For me, the thing that is missing from a majority of play acting right now is that phrase that is in that definition, which is character development. I feel like people come into play acting now just wanting to throw down something funny and aren't necessarily building a character while they're doing it. And so they're, we're really lacking that aspect of getting to see characters grow in these 10 minutes and instead are just watching like slapstick comedy Mm -hmm. or bad jokes that make me uncomfortable as a grown woman watching high schoolers (laughs) perform. And I feel like it's a category that kids go into thinking that they just like, it's just a, there's just a lack of commitment to that character development, I think. Right. So for me, one of the major ones is, and that's, that's sort of in peace choice as well, but it's also in the presentation of, of the script. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. And I was going to say the same thing. Um, not that we're here to like diagnose how this happened, but I do think this is maybe a symptom of uh, duo becoming more popular and having a national presence in a way that play acting does not. Um, I think, you know, in duo, when there's so much offstage focus, the part of the craft of duo is to tell a story even though the two actors cannot interact with one another. And somehow I have seen that transition its way into play acting, that there are a lot that I've seen this year that the two actors barely look at each other. They don't really touch. They don't they don't interact. And so not only have characters not been developed, but there's no relationship between the two characters that are being presented in the piece. And I think part of character development is also understanding that character's relationship to the other people in the play, in the script. And and that is also missing for me. So sad. It's it's a bummer. So, but here's the thing about it. Like, I don't think it's unfixable. There's there's there no. has not been, you know, a, a single round of play acting that I've seen this year that I, I look at the kids in that room and think this is irreparably poor work. Like you can't make it good. You can, but we need to go back to that definition of what play acting is. And we need to focus on character development and interpersonal relationships and using pantomime to set the scene, to set, uh, you know, the, you have a table and chairs, like we need to use those a little bit more wisely as well. Um, but use working with very, very minor stage, uh, setting. How can you build the world that's around you? And it's something that we focused a lot on, in solo acting categories. And I just think we need to, to remember that that's also the job of one of the actor of the actors in play acting. Mm -hmm. There is a relationship there. There's a relationship between solo hum, solo serious duo and play acting. They're all meant to be acting categories where you pantomime, you bring a world to life in front of us. And so much of that is missing. In, in what I have seen uh, the last couple of years, and, and I've judged it three times already this year, and it's, it's not there. And 
the weird thing is, the last time I judged it, I saw a play acting that was basically a duo. Yeah. But then they, they added a few a few moments of like actually looking at and, and touching each other. But really, it, the structure of the piece, the presentation was was a duo and a good one at that. Um, but it was a duo in its in its presentational style. Yeah, and we were talking yesterday as we were peeking around in the tabulation results for other categories during rounds. One of the things I find very interesting about a trend that I've seen this year in group and terp in play acting is that they are almost always still just groups of two. Mm-hmm. Like in the bulk of the category, it is still just pairs. And I find that really disheartening because it's a potential to have so many more voices and so much more like diversity in like the kind of actor or interpreter in this case we're talking about actors so like the Mm -hmm. different levels of of talent and that sort of thing like represented like you can have up to five people and you can do some really cool interesting stuff but so often it's still just like pairs of kids who are doing the category and I don't know if that's just because it's easier to find source material for pairs and couples mm-hmm. but there's so much more I think potential. that's certainly part of it I do think you know one of the flaws of this category um well maybe flaws the wrong way to put it but like in the WFCA, we've made a change in the last couple of years to take it from a 12-minute category down to a 10-minute category, mm-hmm. which makes sense based on the fact that most play acting is two people. Um, but even when it was 12 minutes, to be able to do a scene with five people where all five people are featured and get to have their moment and you know, contribute to the piece meaningfully, like that's tough. Even with 12 minutes, that was tough. And so I think that's always been one of the challenges uh, of play acting. Um, Whereas group interp, where you can have up to five people, it is different because so much of group interp can be done in unison. And so it can be all parts working towards a whole. Whereas when you are, are cutting up a script to present a scene in front of um, a group of people in play acting, it's a little bit harder to to find something, a piece of writing that uh, allows five actors to all share the stage and to all shine in some way, shape, or form. So I do think that's that's one of the the challenges of this category. But it does surprise me we don't see more with like three kids, that it is mostly duos and not uh, three people. In Although I did see a four-person play acting last week. Only three. I saw a four-person one last week. So, so that was nice. Um, but again, that one um, was another one of those pieces where it's one of like the uh, complete, you know, works of William Shakespeare abridged or a complete mm-hmm. Greek mythology abridged or complete history of the world abridged. You know, it, it was another one of those types of scripts, um, which... It works because it's a script, but when the characterization is missing, um, it's it's not fun to watch. And that would be true, too, if they were doing the full piece on stage as a theatrical presentation. Yeah. If the actors in those types of plays don't fully commit to finding unique character traits for every single person they have to play and making them very clear when they are playing one character versus another character, as we do in Solo Hum and Solo Serious all the time, if that isn't the bar that you are trying to pass, it's not fun or entertaining, and it's much harder to follow. And I think that people, like one of the the other challenges of play acting is that there is no lighting, there's no makeup, there's no costume, there's no props. So those that character development becomes even more important and even bigger of a deal than it already is in a play acting Mm -hmm. piece to help not necessarily compensate for that, but to, to do, it has to do more legwork than it would. And so something that I try to do when we do do play acting is choose pieces where 
when describing the set and costuming and stuff, there are lots of words like bare and minimal because mm-hmm. then you're not, you don't feel like when you're trying to to stage it and block it and stuff that you have to like make up for something, which can right. be hard, but it is possible because there are lots of plays and and scripts that are staged that way just because it's cheap for theater companies to do so. Mm-hmm. So that's like just a, just a tip for people who are, a little worried about play acting and having to do that is is looking at scripts where the set and costuming and prop requirements are described as limited and bare and minimal. Mm-hmm. Make things easy on yourself. Yeah, I w- I would also say too in the making things easier on yourself arena. This to me is one of those categories where I don't care if I get a complete story. I'm okay with having the introduction fill in the, you know, the composition or the, the exposition rather, um, having them, having them fill in the background of the characters and the place, and then just watching a really good 10 minute scene between actors. I, like this is one where I don't need a, a beginning, a middle and an end to appreciate the craft of acting happening in front of me. Agree or disagree? 100% agree. Okay, That's good. what the introduction is for. I, I, when I judged playacting earlier this season, I think there were four of them in that room and three of the four of them, I told them that they weren't taking advantage of their introduction enough that mm-hmm. you can use your, like, that's what, it, that's what it's for is to fill gaps and to set the stage and the scene up for the audience in ways that the script can't do. So take mm-hmm. advantage of that. And also, yeah, yeah. I know playacting is one where I feel like people put in a teaser unnecessarily that like breaks the flow of the piece. Sometimes you just need to do your intro and then do your piece separately. Like you don't always have to set me up with a teaser. Like if your scene is, is strong enough and it's ruining the flow of the, of the conversation of the characters or is ruining the buildup to the climax of the scene, then just give me, walk me right into your introduction and let us get it going. Cause Mm -hmm. I, I always feel bad when they are like, okay, well you have to do a teaser first and then, it doesn't like set you on a cliffhanger, it just sort of interrupts the conversation and the flow of the scene. And then you're like, oh, okay. And then it's hard to get that flow back then after the introduction of like settling yeah. back into the characters and stuff. So don't feel like you have to do the teaser. It's, it can be, it, it, it is, it can be well used, but it can also be completely unnecessary. 100% agree. I was going to bring that up as one of my myths because hey. you don't have to use a teaser. It is not a necess- It is not written in the rules as necessary. Um, you know, it, this whole conversation reminds me of like back in the day we used to joke about Night Mother because it's a you know it's a two hander for a lot of that show, and so mm-hmm. um, it was used in play acting all the time, like to the point where we were so sick of it. And if I had been told then that like fifteen years later I'd be sitting here going, I crave a night mother. I wouldn't believe it, but I do. I crave just a really powerful scene between two actors or three actors or four actors or five actors um, where they just work together to, to bring me into where they are at in their life and how they're feeling and and give me just a glimpse into a really well-written show with just one scene. I miss that. I think that's the best of play acting. And it's just not that anymore. Not in practice. No. Also, I love Night Mother. It's a piece that I'd never seen before coming into the forensics world, being not that into mm-hmm. drama. And I remember the first time going to a play acting final my sophomore year and watching it be performed and like crying. Mm-hmm. And I've and I've coached it once in my time as a as a forensics coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a beautiful piece of writing. It's a great it's a great play. It was definitely saturated when I was a student, and for oh, the first 100%. few years I was a coach. Like it was too many places. Um, it it became a, a cliche. Uh, within forensics, but but like that being said, now I I kind of miss it. 
I miss those types of things. When when I would work with a student for play acting, I'd still go to my my shelf of like full length plays and just look mm-hmm. for scenes that would work in the same way Night Mother did. Um, which is not to say that doing, you know, one of the, you know, Shakespeare, history of the world, Greek mythology, abridged things is wrong. Um, that's another way you can go. But you certainly do challenge yourself to make it effective um, for the same reasons we talked about earlier. That If you don't make every character unique, then it's it's hard to follow and, and not that entertaining. And I feel like it's one of those categories where people sort of as the trend was going in group and for a while and it's starting to shift, but that people go into play acting thinking that it has to be entertaining on like a funny level and that it has to be comedic in order to be getting reactions and to be getting engaging mm-hmm. or to be engaging. And that's so limiting. When play acting has so much more space for so many different things, like open yourself up to taking the time to do something more serious. We don't have that opportunity always. And if play acting keeps going as it is now, where it's more focused on comedy than anything else, it's going to really set you apart from the rest of your competitive field. If you're going in and you're doing something that's a little heavier and it's a little bit more dramatically focused. Mm-hmm. Very true. Also that you have to, I know that pe- people will disagree with me on this, but when you're doing something comedic, comedic, there's so much more work in like the timing of that. Like comedic timing is so hard and in, in only 10 minutes and in play acting like, and like you can, and you watch kids and, Anyone who's judges known where you're watching kids try so hard and struggle with the comedic timing of their pieces and like the physicality of their timing. Mm-hmm. But in something like a dramatic piece, you get to do the thing that we're like begging for, which is focusing on the character development a little bit more. And you get to focus on building quieter moments and making them bigger without having to put in nearly the amount of effort in the presentation that you do with a comedic piece, or at least I think so, but I'm also an inexperienced Mm -hmm. actor. I know that they're equally amount, the same amount of work in trying to get to a place dramatically or comedically, but I just think that you get to focus a little bit differently doing a dramatic piece than you do a comedic one. Sure. Well, and I think part of it too, I mean, there are uh, young actors who are, well, young actors, old actors, there are actors who are built uh, for comedy and actors who are built for drama. There's there's an innate sense of how to deliver a joke or an innate sense of how to uh, deliver a dramatic monologue. And so sometimes it's not so much even that uh, you have to, to work at something, but like play to your strengths as well. Um, and if you've played to your strengths to the point where they're not challenging, then certainly challenge yourself with something else. Um, but I do wonder sometimes when I see uh, students in all of our acting categories that like, are they like, what, what motivated this student to be in this category or to try to do this piece? Because it seems, you know, almost like an awkward fitting jacket. Like it just doesn't quite work. Yeah. You can see that, that it's not, it doesn't fit them. Um and that's where the role of a coach becomes so important and having those honest conversations and ultimately always letting, I think, the student decide what's best for them. But hopefully sometime at some point before that student got in front of a judge, you know, a coach had an honest conversation about this is not uh, as effective as it, something else could be for you. Um, or, you know, this piece isn't going to provide you the level of success that you might want. Uh, based on what can be brought to it. So, I mean, I, I would just hate for for students to go into competition feeling like they have prepared as much as they could and, and they're invincible, and then to see scores and critique sheets that don't reflect that. You know, I think that's that's got to be heartbreaking for a kid, and it's part of why I always thought part of my job as a coach was just to be compassionately honest um, with whether or not I thought something would be successful. Yeah. 
And that's a whole other bigger conversation, but I do think about it a lot with play acting because sometimes it's so hard on those critiques because there's, there's a lot I want to address. Um, but you don't want to break a kid's spirit and you don't want them to hate mm-hmm. the activity. Um, you don't want to send them away. No, you really, really don't. So, oh, I feel like this has gotten kind of sad and dark. Um, and again, I, I mean, I don't know that we have correctly diagnosed it or, and, and there's really no cure other than I really do hope that more people start to think about character-based uh, scenes and scripts for, for their kids. Uh, because one thing I have not seen in a long time is, uh, you know, two young people or three young people all taking on a persona that is not a teenage kid, you know? Yeah. Like you can memorize the lines and you can even deliver them with with feeling. But uh, if you still act like a teenage kid, if you still move like a teenager, if you still talk like a teenager, like that's the character development work that we're looking looking for. And that's also part of piece selection because you should pick pieces. Like forensics is one of those cool times when you can act in a piece that you may never get cast in at your current age, you know? And I think that's something that when we talk about what people learn from their categories, I feel like play acting is one where you get to learn about the life and like the paths of other people outside of your little bubble of the world. You can be someone from a different country, from a different age bracket, from a different socioeconomic bracket, and not only bring their story to other people, but sort of get to live in their shoes in little 10 minute chunks. Mm -hmm. And that's really what acting should teach anybody is empathy. Yep. So, yeah, that's great. Um, this this conversation has been pretty wildly different from the others we've had in our categorious talks. Uh, is there anything else in particular that you wanted to touch on? Um, I'm okay with kind of, I think we've touched on a lot of our other usual questions that we ask just in, in unusual ways. I want to say things that I love about play acting. I want to yes, turn this around a little bit. I love that it's the category that I feel like I get to see kids having the most fun in. And like where I just get to watch, like, I feel like it's a category where it's easiest for kids for that to come across, like that they are having a good, great bomb.com time. I was going to say a cuss word and had to say bomb.com instead. Uh, I feel like it's a category where you really can tap into some of the kinetic energy that kids in high school just sort of have and don't know how to get rid of because it can be somewhere where they can get that out the the scope of the stage like like blocking and like platform area that you're allowed to take advantage of is bigger so i feel like you get to see some it there's opportunity for really dynamic cool interesting stuff uh I don't remember at all what the piece was or how long ago it was, but I once saw a play acting that was four students, but it was three of them sitting in chairs and one of them was just crouched behind one of the chairs. And then they and the the actor sitting in front of them did all of their lines in unison just to make the, their voice sound weird and modulated. Hmm. And it was so cool. <laughs> and it's the sort of thing that like gets done in group and terp. But like that unison is sort of expected. Right. But it was just so interesting. And I feel like people, there's so much more room to do and play and interact and play acting. And sometimes people do take advantage of that. But I really want to encourage people to to do more of that. These students get to to physically interact with each other in whatever ways they want. There's no concerns about how often they touch the floor or how far they move across the front of the classroom. They have desks and chairs and tables with them, which to also interact. So really push yourself to think outside of the box, to figure out how to tap into that more. Like, I feel like we've been talking a lot about the scripts and everything, but like really focus a lot on all the cool and interesting things you can do with the fact that students get to physically interact with each other and get to stand on a chair or hide under a table or lay on top of a table or hide behind something. Like, I I feel like it it's another thing that really gets to push the imagination of our students and our coaches. And I really appreciate that. And I think it's super cool in play acting. 
I agree, I totally agree that that is one of the potential positives of play acting. It's just not one I've seen in a few years. Yeah. I, like, so I want to see it again. It yeah. I want to see people using their space in fun, memorable ways and, and having like real, real blocking, you know? Yeah. Like real, like theatrical blocking. And Let's if you want to know what I mean by that, I will give you some specific examples, but I'll do that off the air because I don't want to call it anybody in particular. Yeah. Message us. But if you have opinions about play acting, if you're a school that does play acting all the time, if you think that we are jaded people about play acting, email us, direct message us. Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts because the conversations we begin to have around this uh, series have been super cool. And I love the coaches who come up to me the week after an episode comes out and go, okay, so I was listening to the categories for this week and I need to tell you something. <laughs> yes. So please keep having those conversations with us. The best part about this podcast is the conversations that we are hoping to spark amongst other people, but also the conversations that you all are having with us. It's great. Absolutely. Great. Well, Melissa, I think uh, that about wraps this up and you have a very exciting day ahead of you. I do, but right now I'm just really excited to go have some coffee. Yes. Well, we'll let you do that. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to another uh, Categorious episode of Forensics Faces, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Forensics Faces is proudly produced in Wisconsin, the birthplace of the National Forensics League. Our theme song was written and performed by J.J. Hammeister. If you're a fan of Forensics Faces, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can get in touch with Melissa and me by emailing listen at ForensicsFaces.com. You can also find links to all of our social media accounts and that online merch store by visiting ForensicsFaces.com. I'm Kurt. And I'm Melissa, encouraging you to listen, think, and speak. Preferably in that order. Mm-hmm.